Sweet. What what sound effects are we getting this week? Uh, I don't know. You got any suggestions? Um, maybe something from Space Balls this time. So I was uh, seemingly killed on the podcast last week. Yeah. If you haven't listened, go back and listen to last week's podcast. We had Brendan Buchanan on. And uh, at the beginning of it, none of us could find a time to meet last week. So we usually try to do these at night. And uh, we just couldn't find a day last week. So I told Gordon, well, let me just record a quick intro. and uh, And I'll give you a couple of spots where you can jump in and talk and so i decided to have a little fun with it and and you know i would say something and i'd say all right gordon and then when it came back to me i would say something like um oh i'm sorry to hear about that that's a terrible place to have a rash and thinking i was being funny and then i go back and listen to the finished product and every time gordon had a prompt he had uh like a battlestar galactica scene going on in the background and he was talking about uh you know trying to to pass on the plans before the the enemy arrived and things like it was utter ridiculousness and uh i was i laughed pretty hard at it so i was up the fan i think all of our podcasts should actually <laughs> have that level of insaneness to them going forward stupidity yes just utter stupidity more stupid than what we're doing now yeah we should do a podcast where we're all like all three do a different like record ourselves separately and then just smush it together. See what happens. Well, that's what we, yeah, that's what I, that's what we were trying <laughs> to do with this one. And it, it turned out great. I think, uh, I, I don't hear, you know, if, if podcasts are all about trying to do something different that nobody else has done before, there's, there it is right there. We could call it, you know, Mad Libs. Mad Libs. Podcast Mad Libs. Rant Libs. Well, hey, Libs. There's pro- yeah, there's probably <laughs> already people who call us Rant Libs. <laughs> oh, Speaking of that, it's been a, a big week of candidate interviews with our partnership with WFJA. Uh, I haven't yeah. done any, I haven't conducted any of the interviews, but I've been there every day. And uh, they will conclude on Monday with the school board candidates. Yeah. Um, but what, what did you, what did you think about being an interviewer for, uh, for three of the county commissioner candidates, Billy? Yeah, I was asked to interview three the three Democratic candidates for county commissioner, and I interviewed Amy Dalrymple, Mark Lovick, and Cameron Sharp. And I know Amy and Cameron, uh, their political careers both started around the time I started at the Herald. So uh, you know, I got to know them when Cameron was on the school board, and I think that's around the time Amy um, first started running for office. So I knew that the, the two of them, I did not, I was not familiar with the uh, challenger. Um, I guess the new guy, Mark Lovick, and uh, hey Clara, <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, I, I found him to. Um, I thought they all went great, and I, I thought Mark was uh, um, an interesting guy, and uh, um, he performed really well 
on the interview too. So, um, and the, that said, I also got to uh, go back and listen to um, Matt Garrett's interviews with some of the Republican candidates as well. Uh, first off, I wish I had the voice Matt Garrett had. He uh, he's got one of those deep Bill Freeman radio voices that are you know made for on air like that. But um, but I thought he did a good job too, and I, I thought those interviews went well. So you know I think WFJA's done a, a good service to the community, and um, we're just didn't glad s- we're just glad we can help. Didn't I see John Ramsperger doing one too? Was I wrong? Yeah, no, he did state house interviews. Oh, okay, yeah. And Jan Hayes interviewed the state senate candidates. Oh, okay. Cool, it's like a community effort. Yeah. Yeah, and if you have looked at the Rant website or Facebook in the last couple days, your feed has been full of a lot of posts that sort of look the same, but that there is a lot. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, information about these candidates that, you know, partnering with the radio station, we've been able to put together and if you take a little bit of time and read read what they uh, have written and listen to what they say in these interviews, you should be able to go and vote beginning October 15th with uh, hopefully a good level of knowledge about where these candidates are on locally. So, 15 minutes yeah. goes fast. And uh, in my first interview, I didn't realize that. And Amy Dalrymple spent eight minutes on her intro. <laughs> it's like <laughs> I got the halfway I got the halfway mark notice from uh, uh, one of the producers up there, and I was like, "Oh, damn! <laughs> we've got a, we've got like eight questions we got to go through, and we we got through most of them. But with the other ones, I was able to go much quicker." Yeah, that's that's got to be difficult to sort of manage the clock like that because yeah. this this effort we is pretty freewheeling. We just talk, and when about an hour's up, we're done, and then I can go back and edit it all together and take some things out if we're you know running too long but when you're on the radio it's uh no filter so um the rant also hit a milestone last week right that's right you want to take that one billy you want to talk about that well john brought it up now yeah uh we hit a million views for yay (laughs) make that noise yeah put in an applause uh there I'll put in the Pee Wee Herman noise I always put in when I mention that you fired me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Good screaming, everybody. Wow, wow. Uh, yes, million views. We uh, we came close in 2019. We hit uh, over 900,000 views that year, but uh, we're we're barely into October and we hit a million views. And uh, it's significant for us because, um, you know, obviously that's a, that's a nice round number milestone. But um, if you go back two years with the rant, uh, we thought we were doing really well. And we were, and I think we had what, 400, 600,000 views for the year um, in 2018. And then, um, you know, mostly doubled that in 2019. And now we're, we're uh, on pace to have another significant jump. And, and, uh, we're really thrilled by it. We're thrilled about uh, the amount of people that come to our site daily. I think that's what's really been the, um, the, what's made the numbers go up this year. It's not necessarily that we've had quote unquote bigger stories. We've had a lot of big stories, but nothing that's gone like hugely viral this year. What, uh, what's really helped us is just the amount of people that 
go to rantnc.com every day as part of their, you know, if you can get into that rotation of websites you visit in the morning, then you're doing well. You know, for me, I visit a couple of news sites. I visit a sports site and then I visit, you know, whatever after that. And then you mean a site? (laughs) (laughs) I go to private browser and then, you know, I'm done. No, uh, (laughs) I do private browser for the rant because I don't want people to know. But no, um, we can get in that rotation. That's good. And just the fact that our homepage has so many visits tells me that people are just typing in rantnc.com to see what we've got that day. And uh, that's, that's cool. That's really cool. Yeah. So I was Googling uh, 1 million, you know, page views to see just kind of like if there's any context to how good that is. Yeah. And everything was like, how to get 1 million page views in a month on your website. <laughs> Yeah, but I would I would contend though that it's still a big deal for us because our market is not the whole world. You know, no, it's this right. little area. Well, and also, a million views is good. Also, it's area. earned because when we were first doing this, we can reveal the secret now. Um, we found out that you could cheat early on by posting a lot <laughs> of photo galleries because every time somebody clicked through a photo onto the next photo on it, you know, we would have eight hundred views from just a very you know four or five or six visits we get 800 views and we were like yeah look how many views we got and it was really just a bunch of photos well wordpress which is the platform where we do our website on doesn't count single photo views anymore as a hit so we have no more of these you know reach arounds that we can do and (laughs) and these uh and and these hidden view thing you know you you ever go to you click those clickbait sites that you think, you know, I'm going to read a story or something. And it's uh, to see the next part of this story, click here or click here, you know, and it's like 77 clicks just to get to the one thing you were looking for. Well, those are clickbait. And, and it's because they make money depending on the number of views they get. We don't do that to our readers. We don't, you know, we don't hide things in there to, to make them click as, you know, in fact, we probably don't do enough to, to have people (laughs) navigate our site easily. We just, put stories out and hope people read them. And uh, so not only do we have a really good, uh, uh, not only are we getting more views, but people seem to stay on our site longer than I guess the average site too. So that's, you know, all these, all these different uh, uh, metrics that you look at, we do pretty well in most of them. Well, and it's interesting that that happened for us last week, uh, this past weekend, because um you know, we get asked a lot about how our numbers compare with the Sanford Herald circulation numbers. Um, and obviously we don't know, we didn't know until yesterday. And this is the first time I've seen them do this. They, uh, on page two of the Herald, there was something that said statement of ownership management and circulation of the Sanford Herald. And it's a, it's a certification signed by publisher Jeff Ayers that shows their, what their circulation is. And it's hard to, pin down an exact number because there are different definitions uh you know it says average number of copies each issue during preceding 12 months versus single issue nearest to filing date um and i you know i don't know what all these definitions mean but their daily circulation looks like it's somewhere between 3300 and 4100 so do they do do they deliver any papers now i believe it's all done through the mail and and you brought this up and i suspect you're right that this is a certification that allows them to get the the special mail rate 
Yeah, that's a, so that's exactly what we have to do at my at my real job um, for our periodical. I assume that's what they're doing there, which that yeah, would only count. Well, that would only count mailed copies, though. I, I didn't. I don't know if they deliver. Even back any. when we were there, it was either once a year or once every quarter or something. We had to we had to post what our circulation was, and um, I think the reason we don't realize what it was is because we just don't catch that one day of the year that they did it or um or whatever but you know we we kind of glossed over a very important number there which gordon just said which was 3300 to 4100 let's say it's 4100 let's give them the benefit of the doubt 4100 that is that's half the circulation uh from just 10 years ago it's more than i believe it was I believe it was twelve hundred, twelve thousand when me and Gordon started. There. Yeah, 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 it was, it was twelve to fifteen thousand at one point. Um, I know it started going down considerably um, before I left, so I'm not going to say it <laughs> went down because I left. Before I left, I think it. I think when I left, it was still over ten thousand. But to to see that the it's at four thousand now, and and uh, this is not by any means a knock on the people running it. The newspaper industry yeah. is 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 taking a beating and um but it's, it's still a significant number because um the count the county and the readership area is growing and yet four thousand people reading this paper is not a lot and if you well you could say well you know more people read us because of our website well their website is is um restricted to people who have a subscription or have an online subscription. I think they revealed that number too, Gordon. You said it's it said that there are sixty online subscriptions, and I mean you get a you get an, you get online access if you have a print subscription. Right. So I'm sure more people than sixty are accessing the Herald's website. But according to this, there are sixty, you know, 60 on, online only. One of which is registered to LPH Media <laughs> because we think it's important to read what's being written in other media around the area so 4160 people have access to this website is what we're saying and you know there's no way 4100 people they all visit the site every day so you're looking at um you're looking at a a very reduced number of people who who are reading the herald right now and uh this was something um back when paxton media when we were all there um introduced the idea of paywalls and um, I was, how do you say this word, vehemently or vehemently, vehemently. So the, I yeah, I think the H is silent. So I was vehemently against the idea. I argued it. Um, Virulently. And because uh, the idea to me was, you know, this is the way it's all going. And if you make people pay for the website, they're not, I understand you have to make money. But I also understand that you're going to lose a lot of people if you start charging to read your site because you have to have you have to have a product that they want to pay for. And you know, as much as I am a champion for local news, um, and when you look at people's budgets, I don't see that local news makes it into their budget every month as as being something that's extremely important to them. So. Um, but it happened and this is where the numbers are now. And unless something drastically changes there, I don't see them going up. The idea that offering your content for free will make your, uh, print readership go down. 
I'm not saying it's completely wrong, but there are ways around it. And I think that we're sort of proof of that because when we went to print in April of 28, the year we went to print, uh, I'm sorry, 2019, our web views doubled. And this year, I don't think we'll quite double again, but it'll, it'll be a big increase. And And so I think it's about using those different lanes, print, web, uh, even a podcast, using those different lanes to get information out in a different way. All three things are connected and all three things have a lot of the same information, but all three things aren't the same. Yeah. We, um, and you know, full disclosure, we, we print approximately 3000 copies a month and, um, and we offer them free and we, um, at the end of a month, we have very few extra copies. So we, you know, we can comfortably say that we're delivering, 3000 copies a month to, and they're reaching people's hands and, and hopefully people are reading them and not just using them to wrap up glassware for their moves. But, uh, um, but it's like what you just said, Gordon, we're, we're not losing any of our online readers, even though we offer this free product, this, I think the trick is you have to, your print product has to offer things that your online product doesn't. And your online product has to be able to offer things that your print product doesn't. You have to consider yourself this media conglomerate and not just a newspaper or a website. You have to look at it all as part of what you're delivering. And uh, it's hard to do when you have a, a reduced staff. Um, like all daily newspapers have these days. It's, it's just a really, really tough industry. And uh, I, I, I'm an instructor for a, for a newspaper journalism class at Campbell. And uh, I tell kids all the time that this industry is, is a really tough one to be entering and you got to really, really want to be in it and really come in with, with big ideas and, and have this mindset that you, you're a digital journalist first. You can't, you know, you can't think of yourself as a newspaper journalist. So I got a uh, subscription to the news and observer Sunday edition. It was like $12 or something on Groupon which says a lot too, but, but I've noticed I do like three things. I look at, I do the Sudoku and the number puzzle in the parade section. And I get, I get the uh, coupons and then I like browse through the sports section and the opinion page. Like I think I, I grew up like, like reading newspapers all the time and I love newspapers, but even I don't use them that much. (laughs) But I think the rant I use I I look at the rant and it's like way more informative than because it's like stories that we're not you're not getting every day from a newspaper you know so I think that's our niche yeah that's and the word we we throw uh, I, wow it sounds like we're doing this twenty minute ad for ourselves right now but <laughs> but now we our approach from day one with this printed product was to approach it with the right mix of solid journalism and, and humor. And you don't mm-hmm. see that from newspapers. You know, there, there is an entertainment component to what we do. And I, you gotta, I don't know, maybe a, a, a hard-nosed journalist might, might scoff at that, but um, you've got to deliver something that a, a large swath of people would want to read. Maybe some people like the news and the long form journalism, maybe some people like the, you know, finding the little Easter eggs we put in it. Some people like the columns and, and things like that, but uh, you just, 
it is kind of about pleasing everybody, I guess. And I don't see the newspapers even attempt to do that. Really, I think you and I have the same basketball goal. Yeah? Yeah. Is yours I just bought one at Walmart like uh, a couple weeks ago. Yeah, it's a Walmart. Is yours seven feet tall, right? <laughs> also. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was when we set it up. I put it up to 10. My yeah. girlfriend was like, is that that's 10 feet? That's way too tall. <laughs> yeah, I know. I was, I've been playing on this one with my kids for so long that I was at a uh, I was inside a gym this last weekend with my kids and it was 10 feet. I'm just looking up like it's it's 13 feet. It, it seems, <laughs> yeah, it's like above our deck. <laughs> oh, well, hey, it's good to good to see you again, Aslan. Uh, yeah, congratu- good to see you, congratulations on uh, on your success, and thank you for you know helping us out with our our last edition. We appreciate this. Yeah, I, I appreciate that too. You posted that I was embarrassing you in front of your friends, which yeah. sort of yeah, sort of was my intent. <laughs> but, <laughs> I know. But uh, I mean, is it weird to see yourself on? I, I I know it's like not where you live, so um, you know you don't have to see it around Nashville. But is it weird to see yourself on the cover of something like that? I definitely didn't realize that you literally meant like the whole cover. <laughs> <laughs> like when you when you put up the picture of it, I was like, oh, like that, like the whole thing. Yeah, Billy part- had been. Billy had been asking me to get some pictures from you. We were getting pictures from everybody, but that picture was just so good that. Um, yeah, the kid Cameron that took that is uh, super talented. He um, he's from San Francisco, I think. That's probably wrong. Around that area, and um, he just like showed up at a show. I think that Laney was playing at some vineyard down in Southern California, and you know just did the thing of being a go-getter i guess i think he's like maybe 18 um and uh just took some pictures sent her some free ones did the same thing with um uh that blanco brown guy who's also on laney's label they were playing the show together um he that get up song if you're familiar i don't think so okay it's like the latest like um kind of line dance craze song it's like a country and hip-hop mashup line dance situation Gordon, don't lie. You know, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, the, the, like Charlotte News weatherman was doing it on air kind of thing. It's like one of those. <laughs> really? Yeah. Um, and that's one of y'all's songs? No, 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 no. Oh, he, oh, oh. He, he's just another, he's a label mate of Laney's. And actually, so like Laney's, <laughs> Laney makes uh, jokes that like, you know, she's been trying to do music for like, I don't know, since she was a little kid and her first major success was uh, being in a viral video, dancing with Blanco to that song. <laughs> Cause she was like leaving the label one day and he was coming in he was like, Hey, I got to shoot this video real quick. Um, I know you like dancing. Do you want me to teach you this thing? And they did it in the parking lot in front of his caddy. And then they actually uploaded it to her YouTube channel first. And it, you know, just went super viral. Thanks to all the, the TikTok stuff. The TikTok teams. Yeah. So hey, we don't we don't get bogged down in introductions and bios on here. If you want to learn more about Aslan Freeman, read this uh, this edition of the rant that that's out right now in October, our music edition. He, like he said, he's on our cover. Uh, Aslan Freeman, uh, thanks for joining us today. Um, you you mentioned uh, you're already talking country music and line dancing, and uh, and in the story, um, you kind of touch on the fact that you've you've gone from you. Know, 
I don't know what genre it was I can put it in because it seemed like you you did rock you did punk you did you know this kind of this you know blend of everything I I think and and now you're in country music and uh what what was your relationship with country music before all this were you a fan of it were you was it something that um you listened to a lot growing up or was it something that just you kind of got into and you can't really explain it um my best friend growing up his mom would always have garth on at the house um and they his grandparents owned a ton of land out near tramway and so we definitely spent a lot of time um maybe like unintentionally growing up really country just kind of roaming his grandparents farm and um yeah just being outdoors all the time um fishing and riding go-karts and um yeah, so she would always have have some country on around the house, and that was probably my most frequent early exposure to it. My mom also really loves like Alison Krauss and that kind of more Americana folk sound. So they started taking me to Merle Fest when I was a kid as well. We went every year for I don't know how many years. So I, I probably listened a lot more bluegrass, honestly. Yeah. Um, and that, of course, you know, like I really got into Nickel Creek for a while because of that, because they were melding pop and rock influences into bluegrass. And I definitely loved that. Um, I think I, in high school, when I started really playing music, I was more a reluctant fan of country than anything else where, you know, you want to kind of rebel against that and feel like, Oh no, I'm a, I'm a punk rocker. I, I love hip hop or whatever else, not, you know, the stuff that everybody else at the high school listens to out of their truck. Uh, but then I'd inevitably and he, and hear it always has a truck in it too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, again, you know, it would just be that thing. If we were, if we were all hanging out, it would inevitably like the guy who showed up with his truck and grill to the party would be blasting <laughs> music out of it. And so it was whatever he listened to. Yeah. Um, but inevitably I would hear songs and be like, Oh man, that song is really good though. <laughs> and yeah. So, so it's always kind of been in the back of my mind. Um, and then obviously yeah, when I moved actually before I moved out here, um, I had had um, some people uh, start asking me to do co-writing for a couple country singers, um, which I had never done before. And so I, I kind of started trying to listen to more of it to figure out like what kind of landscape I was walking into um, musically and creatively. Uh, and that was actually really fun and exciting. Um, I just started diving into like, you know, like there's like a few Spotify playlists that, you know, have new stuff in rotation and, so for a while, I was listening to those once every other day or so, just trying to see what people were doing. Um, and a lot of it I don't love still, but every now and then find some really, really good tunes. Um, That's and the I've thing. Like, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to I've definitely come to appreciate it a lot more now. The, the level of songwriting is super high. Um, the level of professionalism out here. Um, with everyone, actually, in, in national in general, it's not just country. Everybody here... Um, even who's not doing music professionally per se takes it at that level of seriousness, which is really refreshing. Sure. Well, what I was going to ask is, you know, you mentioned some of these songs being really good and the level of songwriting being really high, you know, a good song. I think anybody who's into music at some point comes to the realization that like a good song is a good song, but how does that, um, how, do, how does listening to those those songs music that you haven't previously really been into like how does that influence your approach to writing do you is it different than what you've done before do you start with a riff or a lyric or a chorus or what or does it 
just depend on what you're doing? Uh, yeah, it's definitely a bit of a different process from what I would have naturally done. Um, I definitely, a lot of the people I listen to who write in the pop world seem to kind of bridge the gap, but I, I feel like with rock a lot of the time, yeah, you're writing music first, even if it's a melody, you're just scatting a melody and then finding what lyrics fit into that. Or you've got a great guitar riff and then you need right. to fit a melody on top of that. Um, and then with country, um, I still do that, uh, you know, a fair amount. Um, but the more typical thing is writing from the hook because they want to have that great turn of phrase. They want to have that great lyrical hook, not just a vocal or melodic hook. They really want to have that sure. turn of phrase that pays off at the end of the chorus uh, or whatever it is. Um, so a lot of the time, you know, we'll, we'll sit down and people just start throwing out hook ideas that they've jotted down over the course of the last week or month or however long it's been since you last wrote. Um, and then usually what I do as more of the music track kind of guy in a lot of rights um, is I'll just start noodling around on chords and try to set a mood that's going to help inform what hook we pick. Um, so not necessarily like the mood that I'm in that day, but just whatever, like the first hook we grab onto that, that somebody throws out, I'll be like, Oh, maybe something like this and start noodling with it. And then if that starts sparking ideas and everybody gets in the mood to write that hook, we go with that. And if not, maybe we keep throwing out other hooks and one of the other ones catches with the mood that's been set more, or maybe we just scrap it and go on to the next mood. And then within you know the first like 30 minutes to an hour, because you want to do a lot of like talking and catching up too, um, just to see where everybody's at and see mm -hmm. what, what people want to write that day. Um, and then, yeah, maybe within the first hour, we've really got like a solid um, base where it's like, we've got the hook. We know what the song is about more or less. Um, and then either you dive into writing verses and see if that changes where the chorus goes, or you just get the chorus down. And if it's like already great, then you just write the verses to inform that. Would you say that all of these sessions are typically productive? Is it, 50 50 or are there times when it just never nothing ever comes out of it um i haven't had a completely non-productive one yet i i definitely think i think all writing sessions are productive in some way or another even if you don't get a song just because um i think uh ed sheeran had a good analogy about it where it's like you know turning on an old faucet um if you're starting to write or if you've not been writing lately or whatever it was like you know at first it's just dirty crappy water coming out and you have to get it out to make room for the clean water so if you don't if you have a bad song idea and you don't write it that bit of crappy idea is going to work its way into your next song and then the next song after that so you just have to kind of write it and get it out of your system so even yeah. if yeah even if you have a bad day it's like it's exercising the muscle still you know i've i've spent i mean i know you know this but i i've people listening i don't talk about it a whole lot but I, I still write and play music i just don't really you know do anything with it but i my computer is full of like terrible crappy song ideas but i i work through them and i yeah i save them all and sometimes i can go back and listen and be like oh well if i just did this different and i i, I come up with something and but even like the really terrible ones like you said it's you got to get it out of the way so that's interesting yeah. to hear that somebody who makes a living doing music deals with the same Oh, absolutely, man. Yeah. 
Um, I mean, even back when we were doing unifier stuff, you know, we, we overwrote a lot. And a lot of times, um, if you go back through and look at like chronologically, like, you know, demo, you know, 36 or whatever, that would end up turning into 37 and 38, where we were like, oh, um, we really love the chorus of 36, but we don't think the verse is right yet. And then we write a new verse and then the new verse is so good that it beats the chorus. So then we're like, all right, cool. Let's push this down to 37 and write a new chorus for that. And then we end up going and finding like another chorus that actually goes great with the original verse idea of the other one. So it turns into like three separate songs um, just from getting like chopped up and revisited. That's awesome. That's really cool. So what's it like um, being a musician right now? Obviously, well, when we talked to you, you had done a... uh, like a live stream concert the night before, but what, what sorts of things are you guys up to? Um, <clears throat> I'm pretty much just working on studio stuff right now. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, I know for someone like Lainey, you know, she always has a busy schedule writing just all of the time. She, that's, mm-hmm. It's always been that way. She, she loves doing it. And so, um, she just never wants to stop. Right. <laughs> I think when we, when she and I first met, I think she was doing like three a days, um, a lot of days of the week where, you know, it's like early morning, right. Afternoon, right. Evening, right. So she's like trying to crank out like three songs a day sometimes. Wow. And so, I mean, sometimes you get, you know, a verse and chorus and it's like, that's, that's maybe all you really need to tell if the idea is worth revisiting is if you've got a great first verse and chorus and it's like, Oh, you know, that's still the seed of a song that, and that's, that's still a productive, right. Um, so I guess kind of going back to what you're saying earlier, like, yeah, sometimes that's all you get, but it's enough to tell. Um, yeah. The, all the lead guitars, the riffs, whatever else can be fleshed out in the studio. And those are more production choices than writing choices. Right. Yeah. And that, that's, that's more what I do and what I'm doing right now. It's like, okay. um, yeah, it's uh, commonly referred to as being a track guy, which I would like to think of myself as more than a track guy because I, I do write a lot of, you know, lyric mm-hmm. and melody stuff. But the idea just being that, like, you want to have a producer in on the right who can be creating the music as you go, um, just because every you're going to react to every new thing that's, that's put on the song and it's going to change the way the song turns out. So I think people, maybe because of how pop works now, where the producer is the other key element, um, people think about that going into writing a lot, whereas before, you know, it was maybe more just only acoustic guitar driven or only piano driven. Um, so you're saying that in a lot of cases, people write with a specific producer in mind? No, no. I mean, like, so kind of what I was saying earlier, where like uh, pop kind of bridges the gap between country and rock is like a lot of times pop will start with those like scat melody ideas and start mm-hmm. with the beat already being made. It's like, you come in and you sit down and you're just flipping through beats until something clicks and you're like, Oh, I really like that beat. Let's write to that beat. Uh, okay. um, or in my case, a lot of time I'll, I'll, we'll sit down to write and I'll start making a beat and we'll just see where it goes and see where the song goes along with sure. that. Um, but yeah, so with pop, it's like the producer is maybe the most important other element. It's like, what does the track sound like? with the song that's written and then with country the songwriters are the most important other other elements the track can become whatever you know and you see that with just 
even simple things like who people think when a song comes out or when an, at an award show or whatever. It's like they, they're always thinking of the writers on the countryside. And they're always thinking of the producers on the pop side. I see. Um, so I'm kind of in between those two worlds. Uh, I, I try to write a fair amount of pop stuff too. But um, yeah, that's that's basically what I'm working on now is just fleshing out the music side, the, the demo side of whatever we write. So it's a lot of like not necessarily getting paid for it right now, but you do it with the hope as a track guy, you do it with the hope that uh, having a better sounding demo for a song that you were part of writing will catch the ear of someone at a publishing company or whoever. And then that song will end up having a better chance of getting cut and then you'll get the royalties down the line, whatever. How many songs would you say you've written or been a part of writing in the last 10 months since the beginning of 2020? Oh, not a ton. Um, yeah. Yeah, just a handful. I, I I don't keep a schedule as busy as Lainey um, or, you know, because she has a publishing deal. Uh, and so they they get a salary to do it uh, as much as okay. possible. And, and somebody hand, handles their calendar. Um, yeah, I'm more I'm like working in that direction uh, of trying to write more. But um, right now is probably the most I've been writing since I've been in Nashville. And it's like maybe once a week, okay. um, just because I like doing demos of all the songs. <laughs> that right. I'm a part of and it takes a couple of weeks for me to usually like get those fleshed out. Um, I mean, you know, you could do one in a day or two, but I have a lot more fun just like sitting in the basement by myself and like noodling around for a while until I find a cool idea rather than right. just going, all right, here's some chords on it and a beat and it's done. Right. We joked on the podcast when all this uh, pandemic and, and, uh, and all the live shows and everything and all the big events kind of went on pause i joked that uh, 2021 should see some of the greatest albums ever made some some of the greatest books ever written so you know all this because as a musician the live shows have kind of gone away now that we're kind of eight months into this um where are you at with in terms of performing live is it happening yet is it kind of starting to come back a little bit How how's the industry especially in nashville uh, dealing with this right now uh, it's definitely starting to come back. Um, people have done some really cool, interesting, inventive things. There's uh, a place in town, which I haven't gotten to see in person yet, but I've seen a little walkthrough that Lainey's manager did um, where they've got hundreds of iPads basically set up in front of the stage facing the artist. And you can go out and perform basically to this live stream audience and um I think it's like a pricier ticket to get your face on one of those iPads basically. And then the artists can even like, they have the capability to select any of the iPads and like solo it out. So as the artist is performing or interacting, you know, maybe if they're doing like a crossroads kind of like acoustic session or whatever, they want to like talk to the crowd. Um, they can pick an iPad and the, the crew can solo that, that out and they can have a conversation with, one of the members of the audience it's wild um that is great one of the yeah one of the big production companies in town like teamed up with one of the venues and, and put that together and it looks really crazy i i don't know if they've started actually doing shows in it yet but um i'm interested to see um so there's stuff like that um and then i i definitely think there's a a good amount of responsibly hosted live events happening um a few places in town are doing the drive-in thing or um, just just outdoor stuff in general, which 
I don't know. I mean, you can't really control what the crowd is going to do in those scenarios. So I'm sure it can be frustrating when you want to try to do it the right way and people show up and just don't really respect whatever boundaries you're trying to set. Um, so I don't know. That's, that's kind of like touch and go for me, but we were, we were supposed to do a, like a big outdoor festival in Louisiana that got canceled at the last minute because the government decided that even though they were moving into phase three, uh, they were not going to allow big outdoor gatherings or like big events like that. So like it was allowed in phase two and then they changed it in phase three, like right before the show was supposed to happen and like uh, denied the permits and stuff. So there's definitely uh, stuff like that happening elsewhere. Uh, I don't think any of it's enough or going to be enough to um, support people for people to make a living touring, which is you yeah, know, where guess- most of the money comes from. Yeah, that kind of was going to lead into my next question, which was for somebody like Laney, for somebody like yourself, um, uh, how much of your livelihood depends on these live shows and, and, and large venue concerts and, or even mid-sized venue concerts or, or festivals or things like that? Um, how, how is that hurting somebody like her or somebody like you or even, you know, musicians in general right now? I mean, a ton. Um, basically our entire year was booked out with, with touring for the, for the first time. And um, I think, I think in our collective career where we had just stepped up to this next level where we're opening um, bigger shows, like small arena size shows. And we had, yeah, a handful of tours lined up that were going to take us all through the whole year. And that's, yeah, like thousands of dollars a week <laughs> lost for everybody. Um, I can't even imagine for the headliners because they've got their entire crew, production package, everything. I mean, all of those people are, are hurting really, really bad. Um, because yeah, even, even when artists can start kind of weaseling our way back in with a a show here, a show there, I'm lucky that I can still make money recording and doing demos for people. Laney at least still has some income from her publishing deal and label support. And, you know, I mean, nobody's doing well, but we're at least like scraping by, but the events industry as a whole is just, yeah, I don't, I have no idea who is going to survive this and how. Um, I'm sure most of them have, you know, had to find other work. Uh, hopefully some of them got some unemployment support, at least briefly. But yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure you guys have at least seen this, like, Save Our Stages movement and everything. I don't know how tuned in. Uh, I, I see it all the time because everybody I'm friends with is event industry or musicians. But well, I see it from, like, you guys and people like Mike Large and Zach Large and people who yeah. are playing music. So Yeah, I, I think we're I think we're pretty much, like, reaching the breaking point for just about every small venue, most events teams, every, you know. I don't think anybody can really like last a lot longer, not knowing what's going on. And I definitely don't think that anything's going to change anytime soon. So yeah, if, if there's not some sort of government support for the events industry, I, I don't know what landscape we're going to be coming back to whenever we do come back to live shows. Uh, I don't know who's going to be there with what gear in what venues to even host yeah. an event. And to be clear, you guys don't make a whole lot of money off of uh, Spotify or Apple Music, whatever. That's <laughs> no, definitely not. No. I think my last uh, royalty check was like five dollars. Hey, I got an I, I got an email from uh, what is it TuneCore, 
that yeah. said that I needed to hurry up and claim like my three bucks worth of. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's over the course of like seven or eight years. <laughs> right. I had a, a, a funny moment earlier this year where I had realized that the, the one song on Lenny's first EP that I actually co-wrote um, had never showed up in my BMI registration. So whoever at Sony had gone to register it, I guess didn't have my information or, the, you know, they had my name on it, but it was unaffiliated. So I was just not getting collected. Um, Cause I think the other two, I think Lenny and the other writer are both on ASCAP. And so I <clears throat> emailed um, BMI. I was like, Hey, uh, just noticed that this hasn't been showing up, blah, blah, blah. I'm not, you know, the song's been out for like a couple of years, maybe at this point. Um, I, I didn't like expect it to really be anything, but you know, between that and like a couple other country things I've done, it was like one of my more listened to songs, at least uh -huh. recently. So I was like, oh, yeah, like that's, you know, when you're talking about a $5 check, that's a, a not insignificant amount of that. And then they were like, all right, cool. Yeah, we'll get that hooked up and check and see, you know, what um, what hasn't been paid out yet. And then they got back to me like, hey, sorry to let you know, you know, like we don't really like make up lost money if it's under ten dollars that's like yeah that's totally fine <laughs> that's awesome one thing uh we didn't talk about when i interviewed you for that story um and you you may not be doing it anymore but i you were doing some stuff some more rock based stuff here in north carolina still on an occasional basis is that still going on yeah, uh, we haven't really talked much about any of those projects recently, but the the most up-to-date thing was this um, And Dear Friends project that we were doing yeah. that um, we finally got that record finished. It was super labor-intensive, but I'm really, 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 it's some of the best mixes I think I've ever done. Um, and so we've got some of that out into the world, but there's we were trying to get vinyl pressed and release it sometime this year was you know originally the idea but um yeah we haven't really like revisited that i i, I think vinyl is super backed up because on top of all this that, that that plant burned down yeah right around the time that we were looking to wrap up the album get it pressed like john was like rushing me a lot at the end to just be like hey like this plant just burned down if we don't get this done <laughs> and get it into production we're waiting like 40 years or whatever you know um, so yeah, I don't know what the, what the plan is, but that's, that's the most recent rock thing I've done. Um, well, I'm trying I, the, to, you know, go, go ahead. ahead. I was going to say the reason that I was curious about that is, you know, we talked about going from rock into the country world, but is there anything from the country world that you've taken back into more rock, whether it's your approach to writing or mixing or playing? Um, what's that been like? Hmm. I, I, t I could totally see my writing maybe being affected a little bit by it, I but I'm not sure that it's been affected in a way that uh, wouldn't be the same if I just from writing more in general. I, I think it's just like maturing and, and taming in a positive way, uh, the way that I write. Sure. Um, I don't, yeah, I don't know. I have a newfound love for very uh, low tuned dry drums, which is probably very country driven, <laughs> but that's also like, you know, a pretty prominent, like, like indie pop thing. And that's the, sure. the dear friends project is, is as much indie pop as it is rock. So um, yeah, we had a lot of fun making weird drum sounds on that record. Um, awesome. So the, the point of the, uh, the edition that we came, that just came out was that uh, Sanford is home to some, 
you know, pretty successful musicians. And I was wondering if you could just share a little bit about uh, growing up here and um, what, what, you know, what uh, drew you to music and what were some of your earliest uh, music memories? And I, I, I like to use the frame when you gained music consciousness, uh, what were the things that you were listening to? So I, I, I think my first memory of really being into something was, um, well, you know, you know, my, my dad ran the radio station or runs the radio station at the community college. So I've, de I've definitely been around music through my parents for my whole life. I think the the first thing I think back to is like maybe a turning point was uh, when like Napster and LimeWare came out and every, and that was still okay. Yeah. Uh, just, yeah. Sitting on the computer and just downloading anything <laughs> and then making mix CDs of it. And I had one mix CD that was like Lil Bow Wow and Blink-182 and Foo Fighters and just a really weird blend of stuff. Um, which is all still stuff that I listen to today. Maybe not a little Bow Wow, but I think Ludacris <laughs> was on there. And I love Ludacris. Um, so I, I think that was retrospectively like one of the first moments that I saw, there are that I can think of like becoming more rabid about music uh, consumption. And then I always brag a lot about North Carolina in general that we have, I, I, I probably have this conversation one, like once every other week, just about we have so many incredibly talented, awesome musicians and bands and projects and songwriters out of North Carolina, but we have this issue where we don't export it. Yeah. Oh, he froze. <laughs> I thought he was being dramatic. As <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> uh, if you can still hear us, you're uh... oh, there you go. We can't. Can you hear him? I can't hear him. No. my back there you are yes yeah yeah yeah, yeah right, after you, right after you said uh we don't export it you froze and we were waiting for the next line <laughs> <laughs> and then we, we were like wow he's really driving home a point there <laughs> let it sink in man <laughs> we don't export it think about uh, it <laughs> no i was i was just saying like outside of north carolina i don't think anybody has any idea of what's going on inside north carolina musically um just the fact that you can do a whole tour of just North Carolina and play with a bunch of amazing local bands that are all top quality, you know, um, I think is really impressive. And so I guess growing up in Sanford was, was kind of a microcosm of that, that special weirdness of there's just something specific going on in this area, in the state, in this town that doesn't really make sense. And I don't know how it happened, but I was just, you know, early on growing up going to shows that, that you Gordon and Curtis would put on um, and seeing these bands from around the country tour through the local, you know, art center or JC hut or whatever, or somebody's basement. And I didn't understand it at first at the time because I was just like, I can't believe these other bigger acts want to come here. And then once I got out of Sanford and looked back, I was like, oh, I totally understand it now. Like they were coming and playing to an auditorium for like 300 kids. Like everyone has come because it's the only thing going on this weekend in town. Everybody's yep. super excited about it. Everybody's buying merch. And at the end of the night, you know, I know this, like when I put on shows, like Kurt and I 
if the room was covered, we weren't taking a cut. We were giving it all to the touring band. And right. so they were getting paid really well to pay really good shows. We usually had pretty good sound systems. Like everything about it was actually awesome. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and any touring band that I'm in now, I'm like, oh, I'd love to find a little town like that. Um, and then on top of that, you know, um, yeah, the the Mike Larges, the Mike Canes, the the Kurtz, the Use, um, listening to stuff like Cinema Mechanica and Maserati and Braid. Yeah. Um, bringing in this like really unique math rock influence to town. I mean, Eddie, you know, Um, and I I don't think I would have ever heard of any of those bands if I'd grown up anywhere else. And it's so strange to think about this tiny Southern town having such a strange, strangely heavy influence and such a tight knit music culture with some of still to this day, some of the best musicians I've ever played with, you know, like, it's when crazy. Kurt got Santa Mechanica to come here, well, I think they were here a couple times, but the show at the Art Center, that was probably 2005, six. I mean, that was just, that was, inc- I was, I would have been 25, 26 years old, but that was still like a mind blowing thing to have a band of that caliber playing yeah. here. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Well, Billy, did you have anything else? I don't want to take up too much more of your time, Aslan, but uh, I keep yeah, I mean, looking out the side corner of my eye here waiting seeing the painters coming in now we're uh just having a few things done in the house and i'm just like freaking out because they're not wearing masks and you know, <laughs> <laughs> but uh but no no as and i uh um yeah you know not to to sound cheesy or anything but just been a huge fan of yours uh when it you know back in future ghosts and unifier and and to see what you're doing now um you know really thrilled for you and uh thanks man um, i'm just uh you know we're we're excited that you you know are uh are you at where you're at right now and that you're taking the time to talk with us today we, we just really appreciate it and i'm sure uh um we're, we're big fans of your dad too so <laughs> yeah, yeah. he, he kind of helped us get started in this whole audio things yeah. that we're doing with the rant so we, we well, appreciate it was like him. seven seven years ago or something at this point the first time we <laughs> talked yeah yeah um i don't know well seven years ago would have been 2013 that's when you and me recorded an album yeah yeah, that's but, what that's kind of where I want to end, and I don't think Gordon credits himself enough. But he definitely doesn't. The, the, oh, do the work you, the work you did with Gordon on uh, on his uh, first Ort Patrol, um, we play that in my house. Gordon doesn't <laughs> believe this or know this, but but my kids love it. We we did a ukulele cover of Nas Redness for him, amazing, <laughs> and uh, um, and it's just really good stuff. And I know you had a heavy influence on it though, but. Tell Gordon he's good. That's, Aslan that's... made me sound good, though. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, it's funny that you act like you don't know what you're doing, because especially really from a pop sensibility, you're one of my favorite songwriters. Everything you do oh, is so well on. put together. <laughs> no, I'm saying you got the formula down, even if you don't want to admit it. Oh, Everything's I just, it's so clever. It, well, if you heard all the stuff that I have to go through to get to those, everybody, everybody's ideas, that way. You know, I, yeah, I guess. <laughs> I just, you know, well, Billy, you said that that's listened to in your house. Maybe that's where that yeah. $3 that I was telling Aslan about. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah and all the times we played, uh, all the times we played that intro for the rant um, from your Dr. Powerful uh, album was uh, probably where the other $2 came from. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> 
Well, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun, but you know, at this stage of my life and living in a place like Sanford, you definitely can't make a living in music <laughs> being here. And, and I mean, I'm not even trying to make a living, but I just like to make up songs. And if I can get them to sound good with help from people like you <laughs> um, at, from the recording end, you know, I'll put them out into the world, but that's really just what it feels like. It's just kind of, it's just kind of there. Uh, we've, we Orc Patrol has played one show and yeah, you know, maybe we'll play more, maybe we won't, but whatever, it's fun. Hey, that's basically what I feel like right now too. I'm just like, I don't know when anything I work on at the moment is going to come out. I don't know if the thing I'm working on tomorrow is going to pay me or if it's just going to be like, Hey, can you help us out? You know, right. <laughs> whatever thing. Um, well, yeah, I don't know when I'll perform again. It's just, well, I got to do something today and some days but, it doesn't happen, but I know you're trying to wrap it up, Gordon. And, and as an, I'm sorry for one more question here, but just kind of on that whole idea of hitting it big. I know every musician when they start has this goal, I guess. Um, but you reach a point where you don't even really know what quote unquote hitting it big is or, or what that is. And, and so my final question you Aslan, is just for you, um, what is success in, in this industry to you? And, uh, and do you feel like you've achieved it yet? Uh, yeah, my goal was always just to be able to make a living doing it. So I think I've achieved a level of success. Uh, I, I would say that I've achieved a level of success that I want had this not happened. Like last year, I made a good, you know, not literal salary, but the amount of money that I made was uh, acceptable for the standard of living that I want to have going forward in my life. And I would have, I think, made about the same this year and hopefully the same moving forward. So I, I definitely felt like I finally reached that point of like, oh, this is a, a real career now. I'm not just like scraping by on, you know, credit cards or whatever. I mean, yeah, I, I was definitely very broke when I moved here, um, having been very broke after touring for so long before that and saving up just enough to move here. Um, so I, I finally reached that level of stability and where I, I feel like a professional, I feel um I've, I've felt valued through a lot of my career, but I, I feel very valued now. I feel very uh, confident and confident most of the time. Um, so I definitely think that I've been able to achieve that definition of it. Uh, of course, I, I would love to be more successful, but who wouldn't? Right. Um, but I definitely remember having that conversation a lot, even even in the, the Unifier days where, you know, I know we would have loved to, you know, be a huge rock band, but I, I always kept coming back to the, like, you know, well, you know, guys, if we can just make a living touring, if we can just like get to this, like, you know, like those like cult status bands where they're playing like 500 to a thousand cap rooms for the rest of their lives. Just anytime they want to do a tour, it'll sell out. They'll make money. They have a rabid fan base. They can go away for as long as they want. And that fan base continues to spread their music and make them new fans you know i was like if we can just get to that level i'll be super happy because that'll that'll make us all professionals and comfortable and have a career you know we won't be you know recognized in walmart we can still just like yeah. <laughs> remain anonymous which i you think might always... like those rabid fans though when you're at that level like when you do get recognized i bet it's by some really intensely weird super fan <laughs> well yeah yeah that's true <laughs> Oh, cool. That, well, that, uh, that, yeah, that's it. That's all I had, Gordon. I did want to give Aslan the opportunity to share here, you know, where people can find the music that he's worked on and is working on, you know, whether that's Spotify, YouTube, a website, you know, any kind of social media. 
Yeah, I just I have a website under my name, asinfreeman.com, and it's it's you know it's it's meant to be my uh, professional website for songwriting and production and stuff. But there's a, a there's links to stuff there, um, and also like a bunch of like cobbled together were examples, but also links to YouTube and Spotify. Um, I think I have a playlist which is like selections of stuff I've worked on that I try to keep updated. Okay, um, awesome. Yeah, excellent. Well, thanks for your time, man. It's always good to see you. Next time you're uh, next time you're you're back in town, give me a holler. Yeah, my parents are actually on their way to Nashville right now um, for the weekend. Yes, so. I, I I got a text from your dad the other day asking where he could find uh, copies of the rant and. Oh yeah, he asked me for your number. <laughs> he was like, yeah. "I forgot to say." There's, there's a couple of hot <laughs> hot chicken places in Nashville that carry it now. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> awesome, Aslan. Well, thanks, man, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Yeah, of course. Good chatting. All right, you too. Bye. Thanks. See you. So each week, and maybe we can do this over the next three weeks, um, is I wanted each of us to share our our music influences. And, uh, you know, just I know we all understand kind of I, I know John likes drive by truckers. I know, Gordon, you're a huge Nickelback fan. And <laughs> I'm kidding. No. And I know, look at this. Look at this photograph. <laughs> And I know every time Gordon, I do, it makes me laugh. I know Gordon loves music that I've never heard of, but every time I actually listen to stuff that he posts, I find it to be really good stuff too. So um, I think, you know, just sharing the music that we love and uh, having people think about the music that they love, maybe we can do that over the next three weeks. We're already at an hour in this one, so maybe we can just end this by talking about the big news from this week, and that's the passing of... Uh, uh, the man who won more student council presidencies than any in, in history. And that's Eddie Van Halen. Cause he was always the right in name in the eighties. Really? When people voted. Yeah. When people voted for their <laughs> class president, Eddie Van well, Halen. A, always you're, you're older than us. <laughs> yeah. Um, was his, his campaign slogan. If elected, I will not serve. Yes. Yes. Now Eddie Van Halen. Uh, was he hot for teacher? Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna think he didn't like that song. Sounds like a big teacher. Roth. Yeah. Um, Gordon, you you had shared a couple links about him. Um, just uh, as a guitarist yourself, um, what did Eddie Van Halen mean to that instrument and to rock music? I think that Eddie Van Halen is pretty widely regarded as the greatest guitar player. To, to ever live um i can't say that he meant a lot for me in terms of my playing because i'm not very good at guitar and i figured that out pretty quick and i think that sort of informed where i went musically into a lot of really simpler punk sounds but there's no denying how good he was at his inter- instrument and and making it do these crazy things that nobody had ever heard and and, and do exactly what he wanted it to do but You know, there are a lot of other guitar players like that. What I think set him apart was that it was, you know, he's famous for Eruption, which is a guitar solo. But, I mean, they put together songs, you know, like just really great songs. And you can be a very technical musician and write great songs, but you can also be a very technical musician and not write very great songs. 
and that just that set him apart the the the, the, yeah. the songwriting that he and his bandmates were responsible for yeah late 70s early 80s van halen was a lot harder than than uh the 1984 album and and a lot of the Sammy Hagar stuff. If you go back to the their first albums, it was um, it wasn't heavy metal by any means. It wasn't anything like that, but it was hard rock. Yet Eddie had this um, unique ability to take something really hard and make it catchy and and make it um, you know it appeared on pop stations and it appeared on. Uh, it, you know, it crossed genres, I guess, and that was because of of his ability to to take that really hard guitar sound and make it melodic and and catchy to a large group of people, and um, that can't be easy to do. <laughs> the the one of the craziest things that you learn about him when you read about who he was is that he he didn't like to talk about music because he didn't really listen to music. Yeah. Like, like his big contemporary was Randy Rhodes, who played guitar for Ozzy Osbourne before he was killed in a plane crash. And I don't remember seeing this myself, but somebody told me about an interview where he was asked about Randy Rhodes all these years later. And he was like, well, I, you know, I, I think I've heard some of it. He's he pretty good at guitar. You know, like yeah. that's just yeah, mind boggling. They had uh, Chuck Klosterman on the BS podcast this week, and he interviewed him about that. And he said he never listened to music like in the car or anything. He said he'd rather listen to the engine of the car than actual music. Like his his music preferences stopped when he when he became famous. He said, well, so, I, I, can un- because- I, "I can understand that." Um, there's some people that they they want to do something and they don't want the outside influence. They don't want you know they have this very set idea of what their sound is or what their ability is. And instead of taking in other, other people's talents, they just, you know, they don't want any of that influence in them and, and they don't, um, they don't let that dictate who they are, I guess. And, and uh, um, so I can definitely certainly understand that. Uh, I was uh, thinking about, um, my own experience of Van Halen. I was never a huge fan of the band. I was a big fan of, of Eddie's though, because I remember it was, I guess the 1984 album, is that where, where Jump and Yankee Rose and all that, or is that Yankee Rose might've been later, but Jump was on 1984, right? Uh, you know, I don't know. Let's say it was. <laughs> it was. It was around the time when M- they got big into MTV, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And that was kind of, my introduction to them was through MTV and he just always had that, he had that famous painted guitar. Uh, he was always jumping around shirtless wearing overalls or something. And he always had that huge grin on his face. And I remember being drawn to that, being drawn to his abilities more than I was um, the actual band themselves. Like when he plays his solo and jump and he's doing the the finger picking on there and he's got this huge grin I'm sitting there as an eight-year-old or however old I was at the time saying, um, that looks fun. That looks like something, you know, I'd like to do someday or, or something like that. And I thought Dave Lee Roth was just kind of a clown idiot that just, you know, made the, <laughs> made the, he was kind of the distraction, I thought. And I thought Eddie Van Halen was really 
the the spotlight of that band. Well, I I, I disagree that Dave was uh, anything less than a spectacular frontman. But oh no, I don't uh, I don't disagree. He was a spectacular frontman, but the, that band is nothing without Eddie. I think. Oh, of course, of course. That's I mean, it has his name. But yeah. the thing about Jump, and I I may have been saying this to you guys or somebody I prefer, else. I prefer Gary Sharon, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> the fact that you remember that but name. Go on. <laughs> My friend Daniel always had the joke that he was in the band for such a short amount of time. And at the beginning, they were like, oh, man, this is like the best we've ever been. We're all best friends. We love each other. Get out! Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but what I, was, what I was saying is that, um, particularly with Jump, imagine being a band in the mid-'80s at the top of your career known for your wild guitar playing and then to release as a single a completely synth driven song that takes some that takes some balls and it's a great song but it's just to me it's like maybe you said it what you were saying billy about not wanting to be influenced by anything external maybe that that was their vision in that moment and and they just did it and they didn't care if it wasn't a super guitar heavy song yeah yeah and uh the the Sammy Hagar era is is I think the era that you still hear on pop stations today. That right now, hey, and every time I hear that, it, I I can't stand Sammy Hagar, but I still appreciate the solos in it, and I still appreciate the the hooks and and the you know the the guitar in it and uh, and, and and being brought back to uh, Crystal Pepsi, Crystal Pepsi, <laughs> and yeah. by extension, Crystal Crystal Gravy. 